listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing John Staden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. You state in the beginning of your book that science is about facts, and unfortunately, some of those facts arouse passions when they should not. How did we get to this point, and how can we avoid this? <laughs> it's a very good question. Uh, part of the reason it's difficult is a lot of people encourage it. Uh, for example, the current editor of Science tells his audience, which is distinguished scientists, presumably, that they should be politically active. And my thought is, well, that's fine for them as citizens, but not as scientists. The first duty of the scientist is to establish the truth of something. <clears throat> if he's pretty sure it's true, then it's time to get upset or not and decide what to do about it politically and so forth. And I, I think the only solution is to keep emphasizing this fact, which has been known to science for a long time. I think, by the way, it's much worse in social science because these folks are dealing with emotional issues and so on. And it's very, very difficult for them to separate uh, what they know to be the correct thing morally from what they know to be the correct thing factually. How can science, and especially the science of evolution, develop into a religion, and why is this such a dangerous thing? Well, I think because scientists, and the book starts the little debate that I had with an evolutionary biologist, scientists uh, think, many of them think, that their values derive from science, uh, which of course is not true. I mean, science is like a toolbox or as I've said many times, science is a map, not a destination. It gives you the tools to do something, but what you should do depends on your value system. And because these folks are scientists, they think their, their value system derives from science, but of course it doesn't. Now, the best, the most promising avenue, if you, you believe that, is to think that maybe survival is the, is the ultimate value. You know, natural selection is survival of the fittest, and so maybe, maybe we should do those things which uh, ensure our survival, which is probably true, but probably impractical. We, we don't know where evolution is going. So we don't know whether things we feel uh, should promote uh, a good future are really the things that should. And the, I think the most obvious example of this is the movement of eugenics. Now, eugenics was... Uh, not controversial at all in the early, mid-20th century. Most educated people, particularly scientists, thought that a proper aim of humanity should be to improve people genetically. Well, that led to some very bad things, as you know. Uh, a total misconception of it and misapplication of it led to the Holocaust. So the, everybody agreed that was a bad idea. On the other hand... Uh, there still remains the feeling that somehow evolution is a guide. And if, it, if it were to be a guide, we would do a lot of things now that seem totally immoral. For example, take the COVID vaccination. Where should COVID vaccination go? Well, Judeo-Christian morality says it should go first to the most vulnerable people, old people, people with comorbidities and so on. But a strict evolution argument should say, no, no, we should, at least should be the last people 
to get our to get our vaccinations. The vaccination should go to young, healthy people. Well, I think almost nobody agrees with that, but that's a natural consequence of this evolutionary argument. Darwinism is obviously a very controversial topic. Do you believe most people understand Darwin or misinterpret him? Well, the latter, obviously, I mean, including evolutionary biologists. For example, uh, the standard uh, view is that evolution presu- uh, advances by small, random variations. Okay, and, and this is almost an axiom among the most uh, vocal evolutionary writers. But in fact, uh, while the variations in the genome may be random, it's not clear that they are. They're correlated variations, all sorts of things like that. It's not at all clear that the phenotype, the result of these uh, variations, is in any way small or random. And we don't really understand exactly how that works. Uh, the pattern of variation, that's what Darwin talked about, you know, selection and variation, the variation in the phenotype is not random. We don't know whether it's directed or not, but it certainly isn't random. And I think most people don't really understand that. Climate change is something that is discussed more and more. Is this something that we need to worry about, or has it become a bigger concern than what it actually is? Well, I think the latter, but... Uh, the way I proceeded in the book, I've, I'm not a climate scientist, although I, I know enough physics and chemistry, to, I think, to understand it. I was uh, induced to get into this area by a friend who's a physicist and an engineer, and he was very skeptical of the whole thing. And we put together a, a, an article, which subsequently became two chapters in the book, trying to look at the evidence for it. And is it as catastrophic as sometimes assumed? Although I understand the IPCC is now much more moderate in its predictions than it was five or ten years ago. But we looked at the data. We looked at two kinds of arguments in favor of uh, climate change. One is through models. And these models are are two main kinds of them. The biggest uh, class is what's called general climate models, GCMs, and they try to model the entire climate of the Earth by dividing the atmosphere up into little cubes, voxels, millions of them, and applying the laws of physics to that whole system. But of course, it's extremely complicated. You need a lot of fudge factors. There are many, many models. They don't agree, and apparently in recent years, they tended to diverge. So that's just not a reliable way to proceed. Um, There are also physics, or full physics models, a little bit about them. They are much simpler. They apply to uh, not just to the Earth, but to all of those planets that have atmospheres, you know, Venus, Mars, and so on. And they work reasonably well, and they don't predict catastrophic consequences for the most part. The other method is to look at correlations. Is there a correlation between the carbon dioxide level of the atmosphere and the temperature? And there, the answer depends on the period over which you look. If you look at 700,000 years, a relatively recent period in geological time, you find there is a good correlation. When temperature is high, the CO2 concentration is high. When it's low, CO2 is low. But if you look at the details, you find some puzzling facts. One is that very often the temperature rises and the CO2 concentration only rises maybe 800 years later. Now, even the most contrarian scientists will will not argue that the cause follows the effect. So that raises a little bit of skepticism. 
It's complicated, but the, the reason for the uh, temperature causing a CO2 increase is because most of the CO2 comes from the oceans. It's devolved in the oceans. You heat out the ocean, it can hold less uh, dissolved gas, and so the CO2 emerges into the atmosphere, and you get this effect. Well, there is another effect. Of course, there is an effect of CO2 on the atmosphere. The question is, which is bigger? Is it the effect of changes due to the orbit of the Earth, the variation in the sun, and so on? Is it, is it those things which are really the cause, and the CO2 is kind of an after effect, or is it the other? And the balance of evidence is really pretty unclear. Anyway, I'm going on too long. I'll just say the conclusion is, yeah, temperature seems to be rising. It's not clear what the cause is, and there certainly is no reason to view it as a potential catastrophe. I think that's the main thing. There's no reason to perceive it as a catastrophe if the causes are, in fact, largely due to um, this secondary effect of heat from the sun varying the amount of CO2 released from the oceans. In a time where most things in this world are driven by emotion, how can we return to fact-based science? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I think uh, in, in physics and chemistry, it's not too much of a problem, although we see efforts to do things like decolonialize physics, which is on its face absurd. Uh, colonialism is not whatever to do with physics and so on. Um, the main problem, I think, is in the social sciences, which follow the form of the real sciences, but are totally compromised. One way in which they're compromised is by the, the creation of sort of intellectual bubbles. If you look at the number of scientific uh, subdivisions in psychology or, or sociology, you find that there are hundreds, hundreds of them. And within this bubble, they talk to, to one another, and they are not open to criticism from other areas. This is very, very bad. bad and it was uh, known to be bad more than 100 years ago when the British Association in Britain uh, contemplated increasing the number of sections and got a lot of resistance for exactly this reason. Uh, if, you, if you're not open to the widest kind of criticism, your science will get off track. And in an emotional area like social science, it very definitely has gotten off track. So that much of what's written there is nothing more than jargon uh, with no uh, theoretical underpinning that extends beyond the little bubble. And so mo most of social science is really very, very suspect. I don't know what you can do about it. You can't collapse all the sections of the American Psychological Association, although that would be helpful to try and do it. Um, but it, that, uh, that system has really, I think, gotten very much out of hand. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing John Stadden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason. How have race and ethnic studies affected the world of science? <laughs> Well, they've affected it very, very badly. I mean, the two most influential books in this area, one by Ibram X. Kendi, uh, called, I think, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the other is by a lady called Robin DiAngelo, who spent her life uh, running um, diversity and inclusion uh, uh, training sessions, really their indoctrination sessions rather than training sessions. And they all are based on two fallacies. One fallacy 
is that people are essentially identical. Uh, they're identical, not only are they, are they identical individually, but of course they're in, identical across groups. So if groups differ in things like SAT scores, it must be because of something else. And the something else is what they call systemic racism. But systemic racism can't be measured. There's no, there's no way to measure it apart from these supposed effects. And the effects, of course, have many, many other causes. If there are SAT differences, they may reflect uh, uh, home upbringing, schooling levels, uh, genetic differences, and so on. And what this systemic racism idea does is deflect attention from the real causes of these differences. Has this problem always been an issue, or is this more of a recent thing that we're dealing with? Well, that's a good question. It's, I think it's a recent thing. It reminds me in some ways of the Cultural Revolution in, in China. What happened there was that the country was getting more and more capitalist, and uh, Mao, who was the boss at that time, uh, didn't like this trend. And so he upended it all by moving the intellectuals onto the farms, moving kids into the universities, and basically destroying the culture. And I think in a way, that's sort of what's happened here, that the race problem was going away. I mean, racial discrimination had been outlawed for many, many years. There were very few examples of overt, illegal racism. People were getting along better. And a group decided they didn't like this. There must still be racism somewhere, and we're going to find it. And so that's what they, they had on, headed off on this crusade. And that's, I think, I think, the reason why systemic racism is unmeasurable. And therefore, not only, it's a great benefit, actually, that it's unmeasurable, because if it's unmeasurable, you can't get rid of it, because you don't know when you've gotten rid of it. And if there are, in fact, other reasons for these racial disparities, they will be systematically ignored. And I think that's what's happened here. Do most schools teach factual science these days? And if not, what effect does this have on the whole of society? Well, obviously, it has very, very bad effects because um, political decisions are based on ideological differences and uh, on factual differences. As I said, science is only a guide. It doesn't tell you what to do. Um, but if the facts of science are distorted, then that guide will be, will be a, a false one, and you'll get very bad, uh, very bad effects. Uh, we saw a little bit of this lack of criticism problem in the COVID business. When COVID started, people didn't really understand too much about it. They didn't know how uh, infectious it was, how dangerous it was, and so on. And so uh, the people at the top of the medical political hierarchy decided after a certain point they were going to suppress, basically suppress criticism. So you had groups like this, these three physicians who came up with this great bank and declaration, as they called it. It's a perfectly reasonable point of view. It could have been debated and so on, but instead it was suppressed. It was taken off the social media and so on. And that's, of course, incredibly dangerous. I mean, these people were not unqualified. The arguments they were making were perfectly reasonable. They could have been refuted if they were wrong. But no effort was made to deal with the counter-arguments. So I think the COVID crisis sort of indicates one of the bad effects of suppressing criticism, legitimate criticism. You've mentioned the COVID crisis and then the lockdowns with the schools 
and how this was depriving children of education. Do you think this is something that the children can recover from or um, do you think they'll always have long lasting uh, effects because of this? Well, that's a good question. I don't think anybody really knows, actually. But uh, it shows a defect in our the, the interaction between the scientific community and the political community. The scientists should always be advisors. They shouldn't make policy. And the reason they shouldn't make policy is a good scientist is a specialist. He knows a lot about a little. But a politician has two advantages over the scientists in making society-wide decisions. First of all, he knows uh, not a lot about a little, but a little about a lot. He knows uh, he has access to the economic consequences of decisions, political consequences, and so on. And second of all, he has legitimacy because he's elected. So uh, there should be a complete separation, I would say, between policies which affect the community as a whole and scientists. Scientists should advise. They should not decide. They should not decide. They, they should pr present advice to the political system, which should then make the decision. And that was completely muddled up in the COVID crisis. I mean, Dr. Fauci had for a while absolute power, and nobody deserves that, least of all uh, uh, somebody who specialized in one particular area. The converse would be to say economists should decide everything. You know, if you're a free market libertarian, you should be in favor of you know, globalization, international trade, and so on. You should make the decisions. Well, of course, you shouldn't. You should not make the decisions. The political system should make the decisions. But you should give the best advice that you can. Do you believe one can be a good scientist without being a person of faith? That's a very good question. I think uh, if you look at the history of science, it, it evolved in a Judeo-Christian framework. Many of the greatest scientists in the world were, were uh, fervent Christians. On the primary example is Isaac Newton. He was very religious. Uh, sometimes this religion went off to rather strange directions, but he, he kept his uh, focus on physics, the physics of light, the physics of gravity, and so on. So if you look at the history, I think Judeo-Christian faith has been, in fact, despite some counter-movements from popes and so on, has been, in fact, a, a seedbed for science, absolute seedbed for science. Now, other religions haven't been so sympathetic. I mean, the Islamic religion was uh, probably anti-science. Uh, the early Arab developments in science were great in the 8th, 9th centuries and so on. And then Islam came along and uh, that faded. Now, there are arguments on both sides there, but there's one chap, Jim Al-Khalili, thinks it was just uh, political uh, invasions and so on which suppressed Islamic science. Uh, but others would say, well, uh, part of Islam is that uh, um, Allah decides everything in a capricious way. And if you don't believe the laws of nature are fixed, then it's your business to find them. And I think this was the belief of the Judeo-Christian community. If you don't believe that, there's no point to doing science. I mean, science demands faith, a faith, a faith in uh, a single truth, a faith in the, uh, the, the methods of science, uh, a belief in the, you know, that any kind of fact is subject to test. And if you can't test it, it lies outside of science. Uh, that's 
intrinsic, I think, to uh, to the origins of science. So, yeah, I think religion, far from being antithetical to science, is historically, and I think in the present, very helpful to it. All right. Well, that is all the questions I have for you today. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Our guest has been John Stadden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.